Welcome back to KPWB. We got a caller on line one. Caller, what's up? Yeah, uh, I was just wondering, are you guys gonna play any more uh, Ryan Cedarquist hits? I haven't heard them for a while. Caller, you are in luck. We got a new one dropping here right now. Ten thousand feet, you know, here we are, above all the clouds and below all the stars. Whoa, ten thousand feet, you know, here we are, above all the clouds and below the stars. Whoa, L E A D V I. Here at KQWB, it's from Ryan Sinterquist, all the way from Lundell, Colorado. Yeah, bruh. Yep. We behind the sky, give me that high mountain vibe. Cloud City, baby, joke is that fortune goodbye. John Winthrop said it best, we're a city on a hill. Horace David did the rest, collecting bill after bill. We got that Dutch Henry Hill, you know we call it boom days. Borough Wasons, Gajoran, there's a couple of ways. A coming down Harrison, and everyone is amazed. I tell them, Market Mountain, massive, and I'm not even phased. Saying hi to Smokey at the community threads. I got my melee looking fresh, you know I turning heads. I'm stealing glances from your girl, better alert the feds. As I ride in my dog sled, they thoroughbreds. And I'm a panther for life, you know a cool cat. Our teachers be so fly, you know they know how to Snapchat. And they be tripping every time we be wearing a hat. But we be dripping, we in crew circle shouting who that. And when we up to bat, let will be a true team. We radical David Platt, we turning you into a We all in the Democrat, our stories need a new ream. We all in the field chopping victory, it's our new video. Silver Rush, heavy half coming over Columbine in the Leadville, 145 behind the Winter Tim Park. Went around the lake, looking that I can't even win him in a fast car. Do we even have a bar? Tweet line, PB, Pioneer Woods, 24 7 back in the day. Can I have a say when I want on my way? Get a nap at the Tennessee Pass Cafe. 10,000 feet, you know, here we are. Above all the clouds, but Test one, two, three. Welcome to the Cedar Scare Podcast. My name's Ryan Cedarquist. We have a great show for you today. So nothing like burning the first two minutes playing um, our Leadville intro. We probably lost all five of our listeners in that two-minute span. Hopefully not, though. If you're with us here today, I think you'll enjoy some of the things we're going to talk about. There's just... There's a ton of things, so I, I kind of wasn't even sure, uh, do I call this a Cedar Skier podcast? Is this a Cedar Skier sports show? Is, you know, what is this really? I think we're going to call this a Cedar Skier podcast because we heard me talking about some some ski news uh, and some just endurance stuff in general. So uh, the plan for today to talk a little bit about a book I'm reading called The Secret Race by Tyler Hamilton. If you're not sure who Tyler Hamilton is, he was uh, the American who won the gold medal in 2004 in cycling. He was a teammate of Lance Armstrong's and um, arguably just as talented as Lance Armstrong, really, um, and then branched away, got fourth in the Tour de France, riding with a broken collarbone for pretty much the entire race back in 2003. Uh, But this book is all about, it's called the Inside the Hidden World of the Tour de France, so it really takes you inside uh, just totally open, honest, everything, right? Um, about doping, about um, everything in the world of cycling. So that kind of came out a very similar, uh, right, right around the same time. I think the copyright is 2013, 2012. Um, right around the same time, Lance went on Oprah and actually confessed. Yeah, it's copyright 2012 and 2013. They have a new afterword in the book. I haven't gotten it to yet about uh, some comments after Lance goes on Oprah. So... Now that the, all, all that stuff's in the open now anyway, 
But this book uh, really goes insanely in depth. So we're going to talk about that because it covers some different topics that we've mentioned on some previous shows. Doping talk, talks about some of that. Talks a little about eating disorders, and then um, I just want to talk about some of the the passion of uh, professional sports, professional athletes. So three topics from that book. We're going to we're going to run. Then, then we're going to have a little discussion about the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers track and cross country. Now, I'm just going to whet your appetite there because um, some breaking news or at least a, a front page uh, op-ed by sub-four-minute miler John Simmons was just written yesterday about how this decision uh, coming up on October 12th was kind of going to determine the state of track and field in America for decades to come. So basically, the the Gophers are at, right at the center of the future of uh, USA track and field in their decision to cut men's track um, and limit some of the sizes of the women's team as well. So it's a big topic. It's definitely something that deserves probably an entire hour-long show. So we're just going to read a few things from that. We are going to talk a little bit more about uh, our home state of Minnesota, the Minnesota State High School League, their decision on fall sports. Uh, That was pretty recent. And then I also want to touch on the NCAA's decision to hold Division I cross-country nationals in March, which is just kind of weird. So that is... Uh, oh, and then we also are going to go through, present so, on the ski side, some ski news. We've got FIS has put out the calendar for next, for this year and for next year. Um, and also, uh, I listened to the Visma podcast the other night. I've got a training insight that I'll give you from that. So as you can see, just just tons of different things that we need to get to. So I think we should hop right into it. Uh, hopefully you're still with us. Uh, we'll, we'll lock in for maybe an hour long show here this morning and, uh, and get you on your way. All right. So Tyler Hamilton, the secret race books are awesome. First of all, and I like picking up this book whenever I'm not, not sure if I'm going to go out for that bike ride in this, uh, quickly evaporating fall that we get in Leadville. Fall, uh, it lasts from September 20th to October 1st, if you live in Leadville. So, uh, the days and the chances to bike are, well, there's not that many. Okay. And there's great places to bike around here. Uh, and that's not totally true. I mean, I'm enjoying cycling, but it does get, it gets cold when the sun goes down. So some evenings it's a little discouraging and and I need to pick me up. And so I enjoy reading about, um, you know, the life of some pro cyclists. And I'm not a great cyclist at all. It is, it's, it's kind of insane, actually, when you think about, um, or at least I would consider myself to be uh, above average from an endurance capacity standpoint. And when I get out on, on my bike with real cyclists, it's just, it's still insanely embarrassing how, uh, how I'm not able to, it's just another world. You know, it's, it's kind of like if you take a runner who's never skied and put him on skis, it's, it's a little bit similar. Although that's so much more technique related. You'd think, well, it's biking. There's not as much skill, but there's still a ton of, uh, um, sports specific movement and training that has to take place. So a real cyclist can just crush someone who's even in really good shape, but I do like climbing. I like gravel grinding. I like taking easy single track. That's not risky. So here we go. Tyler Hamilton, this book came out inside the hidden world of the Tour de France. And um, I kind of gave you a good uh, a preface here, but 
I'll just say right off the top, I'm almost done with this book. This is one of those books, if you're a sports fan, um, it's really well written. It's not the Fran Tarkenton biography, okay? I always use that as my example of kind of like, it's the Fran Tarkenton biography is sort of like a fourth grader wrote about how great of a backyard football team he had. That's the Fran Tarkenton biography. This is a little more of a John Feinstein type, okay? The, um, this is Tyler Hamilton and Daniel Coyle. So it is written um, from the perspective of Tyler. Feel, you know, it's, it's an auto uh, biography about this time. I knew who Tyler Hamilton was uh, just as a general sports fan, but man, this is cool to see the in-depth and learn about his story. He started out, um, I'm not even sure how much detail I really need to give, I guess. I don't want to waste too much time Um, because it's not all pertinent to our topics, but um, I guess, guess, hmm, maybe I'll just read the quote about doping since we had talked about this on our last show i think where we were talking about kipchoge i sort of compared kipchoge to lance armstrong and was like hey why why doesn't anyone bug kipchoge about doping is kipchoge the new armstrong you know he's so dominant and he's winning all the time and everyone everyone believes in him we have him on this high pedestal and um, that's exactly how we thought of lance armstrong back in the uh the beginning of the millennium and uh and then kind of like, well, even if they are doping, how much respect do we still give them? Because isn't it kind of an even playing field? And this book is even more illuminating to that fact of how prevalent doping was and just how common it was. Like the language, the the conversations between cyclists in the Peloton, they're all brought to light in this book, which is just so cool. I mean, they, they talk about it. Um, just as cavalier as any other topic. It's so commonplace and so known. And they even have secret little terms for riders who are riding <clears throat> um, totally naturally. They call it just on bread and water. So if you're not doping at all, you're just on bread and water, and they have a, a Spanish term for it. But um, they talk about how some people were riding that day, uh, panigua, I think it is, uh, paniagua, yeah. Now, the Spanish speakers are like, you're so close. Um, But anyway, you know, how certain days, that's what athletes are doing is is they're just biking on that, and there's so much worse. Like, they they just don't even stand a chance. And, you know, in the the late 90s, EPO emerges. The playing field is just blown apart. All of a sudden, in order to compete, you have to be doing EPO. um, And and, um, then... After Armstrong wins his first one, they, they can, then they get the, the blood transfusions. That's the next step. So that's when athletes are, are taking blood out of their own body uh, two to four weeks in advance and then reinfusing it the night before. They really need a big performance because uh, it gives them the massive boost of red blood cells. Okay, so that Armstrong, that's like the new the new strategy that's even more of a big deal than EPO. Like EPO is something they have to do constantly through their training um, as, along with testosterone in order to sustain the level of, in, of uh, volume and intensity while also losing weight. The, the, the secrets to being the cyclist by the, these doctors, you know, they determine it's like you have to um, increase your power to weight ratio. So you need to get your power numbers up you got to get you have to be super super skinny and you got to you have to have keep your um uh red blood cell count the hemocrit wait is that what it was hematocrit let me look up the page where it says the secrets here uh 
Yeah, this is uh, uh, page 164, one of the doctors. He says, here's the keys for tour success. To win the tour, you, one, have to be very, very fit. You have to be very, very skinny. You have to keep your hematocrit up. Um, so these, these athletes are all doing EPO constantly throughout the year, which which in and of itself would be just stressful. You know, they, they, they walk through how they have to um, – not go over their numbers. They can't go over 50 uh, or they'll get caught. And, you know, if they're glowing, they kind of have to be in hiding. And or if a tester comes, then they're taking saline or drinking, guzzling a ton of water. Um, Just the, uh, and this will be one of the points I bring up, the effort required to dope from a logistical standpoint, like let's just pretend you didn't even train at all. You were just going to try and dope and not get caught. So you're going to sit on your couch, you're going to dope, but, but, but just to pull that off is literally like a full-time job and it costs full-time salary, you know, to hire these doctors and get these things is like a well over 70, 80 grand a year proposition for these athletes. Um, and then they, they, they make it up, they make up for it because they get some bonuses, you know, if they win the tour, this, you know, they get to make, make that money back, but they are essentially going, okay, I got to pay my doping fee, which is paying this doctor to set up these things and, and, and uh, refrigerate my blood and do the transfusions in secret locations. And we're going to meet at all these random spots and go into random people's apartments and hotel rooms and, and do the transfusions, take a bunch of blood out of my body, store it. it the logistical thing, the side of it is just crazy. It's just, it, it, it dwarfs any other logistical uh, element in any sport. That's skiing, tra- you know, the ski wax, travel testing thing. I used to think that was just, you know, that's just a crazy element. And that's why you need a full-on staff. And it is. It is crazy. But um, the, the cycling world is, is way more. And it's, it's often you can't have too big of a network. So you have to do all that work on your own and with two or three other guys. Um, you know, even um, after, in 1999, I believe it was, the the tour or maybe it was no it wasn't 99 it would have been 97 or 98 one of the years when pantini was kind of relevant the festina affair they call it the, yeah this was the year that armstrong did not race he was coming back from cancer uh the festina team was busted and it was this huge thing you know they, they were raided drugs found the entire team um uh um accused and and they were all uh, out out of the tour and the riders were upset they felt this was unfair you know so they all protested by not riding and it was an uh, ineffective protest and just this whole hullabaloo and basically the consequence of that was um at that time and up to that time teams were all in on doping so they were they were providing the epo in the team buses for everyone they were um it was all contained in the team and and actually they mentioned in the book when festina the night that they were um uh uh, caught many teams flushed down thousands of dollars of EPO um, down RV, uh, you know the the toilets in the RV and stuff like that. And they said the postal is twenty five thousand dollars worth, and the teams are like, okay, that's it. We're not going to take care of this. You got to figure out where to get your own EPO on each individual athlete. So it was on each individual athlete to do that. So isn't that crazy? Even in the, in the mid nineties, doping was so prevalent. It was like you know, part of the deal, the team was going to provide that for you. Okay. Wandering a little bit off, uh, try, trying to stay on, on topic here with, with this book. It's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. So 
Going back to our conversation last time, though, I think something I had posed was like, well, if everyone's doping, it's kind of even play, even playing field, so we should just give Lance, you know, all the respect that he deserves, right? Well, there, in this book, there's a good paragraph that was kind of illuminating for me, and I'll, I'll read it here. It, here's what it says. If everybody was using EPO, then wasn't it just a level playing field? The answer, according to scientists, is no, because every drug affects different people differently. In the case of EPO, it is particularly illusory due to the varying opportunities for improvement created by the UCI's 50% hematocrit limit. So remember, if your hematocrit gets above 50, you're, you're done. You're in trouble. So when you take EPO, it boosts your hematocrit. When you're training and training and training, your hematocrit lowers. So that's why they took EPOs, because in the, in the three-week tour, you might start at, at your natural level. Maybe it's 45, 46, 47, okay? But, but over the course of doing all those races, by, by week two, you're down to 44, no matter what. By week three, you're down to 40, right? And that's when the tour is usually won, is week two or three on those mountain passes. That's when you need EPO the most, when you need the red blood cells the most. So that's why some athletes say, by the way, that like you literally couldn't win the Tour de France without taking EPO. Okay, there's kind of a point to that. Okay, continuing on. For example, Hamilton's natural hematocrit is typically 42. Taking enough EPO to get to 50 means he could raise his hematocrit eight points an increase of 19%. In other words, Hamilton could add 19% more oxygen-carrying red blood cells, a huge increase in power, and still test under the hematocrit limit. Now let's consider a different rider who has a natural hematocrit of 48. Under the 50% rule, that rider could only take enough EPO to add 2 points or 4% more red blood cells, a power increase one-fourth of Hamilton's. That might be one of the reasons Hamilton's performance increased so rapidly when he started taking EPO. Also, studies, studies show that some people respond more to EPO than others. In addition, some people respond more than others to the increased training enabled by EPO. Then you have the fact that EPO shifts the performance limits from the body's central physiology, how much the heart pumps, to the peripheral physiology, how fast the enzymes in the muscles can absorb oxygen. The bottom line, EPO and other drugs don't level the physiological playing field. They just shift it to new areas and distort it. As Dr. Michael Ashenden puts it, the winner in a dope race is not the one who trained the hardest, but the one who trained the hardest and whose physiology responded best to the drugs. All right, so uh, yeah, they're all doping, but that doesn't make it an even playing field because of those factors. Um, And Armstrong was was the guy who trained the hardest and was the best at doping and probably responded the best to doping too, I guess. You can make that argument. Uh, Hamilton's kind of a freak cyclist though, and he is, I think the reason it's easy to kind of fall in love with him, um, especially when you were a, a fan probably back then, is he was so tough. That is his calling card was like, he's small, this small little guy, but just gutsy and tough. Uh, and and his performances, even when he was doped, are really evident of that. The the O three tour, he he smashed his collarbone in like stage two, and rode the rest of the day. He he grinded off like his front teeth in that race because he you know he was in so much pain. He he was like able to distract himself because of the pain in his his legs from cycling hard that distracted him from the pain in his collarbone and then also grinding his teeth away to almost nothing. So he's kind of that kind of rider. And and I, I think we all sort of enjoy seeing the, the resiliency of the human spirit and the human body. And Hamilton's definitely that. Um, And then also he's not big brash bully like Armstrong was. He was much more of a quiet dude, honest, wants to do the right thing. Right. Um, 
and and so it, it's sad to see him get tangled up in that doping affair. Um, but again, the fact it's it's sort of weird. It's like since everyone was doing it, you sort of kind of are still on his side, so to speak. And even through reading this book, you're you don't really get that feeling like he's um, doing something wrong so much as he's just living a double life. And that's I think how he sort of felt it too. And that's why he was able to do it for so long, and why he did continue to do it. He he didn't he was living a double life. He didn't want to come come back to his Massachusetts New England roots. Tell his parents who had you know basically raised him under one principle: don't lie and don't cheat. You know, and tell him here I am lying and cheating. You know, and that's where my career is founded on. I mean, it would have been devastating, absolutely devastating for him to to do that. So I, I you totally feel for him on that aspect. Uh, there, there's some other kind of really cool features of this book. Uh, the, the other one I wanted to bring up was just to show you kind of how cool of writing this is. There's a paragraph that just, man, I felt like it really brought you into Lance's personality. You know, he's had so many great teammates and the way he describes his teammates and the training life and, you know, living in an apartment, uh, with a bunch of cyclists and, and daily rides and, and those types of conversations that were had are just so interesting and fascinating to me. It really it brings you in there as if you are uh, you're getting to experience and it. Maybe it's just me as uh, having a lot of those experiences myself, you know, where you go maybe a couple of weeks where uh, you're living next to someone who's a good training buddy. And so you kind of fall into this routine where you wake up every every morning and run with that person. Or maybe it's a Sunday meetup that just happens as a, you know, you didn't even plan it, but for several months or maybe a year or longer, you're just kind of doing that. And and you grow really close, grow really close to that person. I think that's one of the coolest things about sports and training. Um, I've had that with a couple of people uh, in my lifetime. I've trained a lot by myself, but but definitely some summers back home in Fargo Moorhead, there was a few a few occasions where I had a string of a, mo- a couple months where I was running with with the same the same person every single day, and it was so fun to have those conversations. Just just everything, the brotherhood the, that you get. So cyclists who are riding hundreds of miles every day, and that's their only thing to do. I can just only imagine how close you would get to those people. Um, so that, that's kind of sweet. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, this paragraph maybe won't make you think, uh, that much, but I, I just, I don't know. I can picture this. When Lance enters a situation, he has a habit of shaking things up, raising the temperature of the room. I've come to believe that it's not something he can help. It's as though he's allergic to calm. It's almost like he's not comfortable unless there's a sense of discomfort of intense and decisive action. He had a knack for seeking out weaknesses, for putting his finger on something that needs to be improved. He constantly judged everything. What kind of cereal we should have at the training table, where we should train, what kind of water bottle tops were best, which signor gave the best massage, massage, where you could get the best bread, how to make espresso, what tech stock was going to take off. You name it, he knew it and told you in no uncertain terms. Things he admired would earn an appreciative nod things he didn't like would be dismissed with a puff of air through the lips uh, pff, a habit lance seemed to have picked up from the europeans there were no gray areas things were either amazing or awful we used to joke that the one word guaranteed to piss lance off was maybe oh man and then it goes on uh it uses some other language that maybe not appropriate for this podcast, but, uh, and, and that there isn't a lot of that in that, in that book. It's not, it's not super dirty, but there's a few, a few, a few cuss words. So just be aware of that, but really great writing from that book. Okay. So almost done with the Tyler Hamilton segment. There was one last thing that 
I, I wanted to bring up because it, it ties into some, a, a section, uh, some writing that we're doing on eating disorders and, um, and endurance athletes. So Hamilton, I, I, I sort of just touched the surface on the logistical nightmare of doping. Okay. So remember these guys are taking shots at EPO once every couple of days. Okay. They are literally flying across the country to meet with doctors to do blood transfusions. Okay. So taking out tons of blood, having to do it in secret, having to worry about where to store that blood, and then having to figure out how to get that blood back in their body in the middle of the tour to France, which required meeting up at obscure locations um, with that doctor again and getting hooked up and pumping the blood back in. That to me is like on par again with like Ocean's Eleven, right? So you got that side of the sport, Ocean's Eleven. And then you have the side of the sport where these guys have to train 25 to 30 hours a week, right? So just throw that in there, the exhaustion from that. All right. And then the third element is, and that's a huge job. That training is just, we just overlooked that. Like it's nothing because compared to some of these other things, it really is. The mental side of, of the uh, relationship with body weight is huge now because they're they're trying to train and improve their power numbers and then get lighter. So I'm just trying to imagine the stress in a cyclist's head, right? You've got the worry of being caught, losing everything from a financial standpoint. You've got the mind having to be incredibly efficient from an executive functioning standpoint to plan out all of these transactions illegal transactions, EPO, transfusions. Then you have the simple fact that, oh, and then you have the the mind also having to have some amount left in all that to persevere through daily 100-mile rides and insanely hard workouts, sometimes by yourself, sometimes with a teammate, okay? And then whatever left morsel really completely is going to be consumed by the fact that um, in and amongst all that, you might finish a 100-mile ride, guzzle a bunch of water, maybe eat an apple, and then take some sleeping pills and, and hope you fall asleep until the next morning. Um, those are literal uh, stories from this book. And so Hamilton, I think, um, he gets extremely lean. You can, you can look up pictures of, of him and it is frightening how lean he is. He's down to 3.8% body fat. He, he puts some of his numbers. He gets to the, the coveted 6.7 and above. He actually gets to 6.8 Watts per kilogram in his tests, which is insane. Uh, insane. I don't think I could even push above like 2.8 probably if I was tested in a max wattage. So it's crazy that a little five foot eight, 129 pound person could, could be doing that. Uh, so he gets very thin and, and I'm sort of what, you know, right. You're sort of wondering like, man, this guy, you know, an eating disorder would have to set in, in that situation. Um, but I also want to pull, and, and, and I think he, he did, he sort of admits that at the peak of his fitness, he was maybe borderline on that. He doesn't go full on in depth, but he does absolutely mention how it's almost kind of a consuming thought, which it just would be. You'd just always be so hungry um, and trying to cut that weight. And, and, and he, he does mention how certain coaches and those, the doctors were just very rough around the edges when it came to that. So if they're sitting at a team meal after a ride, they give glares 
at, at riders when they when they reach for a food, like any food, <laughs> but especially sweets, you know, cookies or or whatever. And so there, there's that tension there. Um, he 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 mentions how even you know one day Lance Armstrong not he didn't just eat one piece of cake, not two, but had three pieces of cake, and the other riders were just stunned looking around at the table watching this happen and then the next day it was supposed to be an easy ride and Armstrong um what sent them through like six hours of threshold work you know and it was because Armstrong slipped up and ate that food and had to be burned off so everyone was punished and but just that awareness of the the relationship between body weight and food Armstrong was extremely meticulous a doctor had had convinced him to to buy a uh, a scale to weigh his food, you know, and so Armstrong was certainly um, very meticulous. And some people might go, "Well, surely that's you know sign of an eating disorder." And I think, you know, quite to be honest, like that's something only Armstrong could probably answer for for himself. Because you could also argue that at this point, with all these things on the table, arranging doping, figuring out training, uh, paying a ton of money to doctors to do illegal things, you've kind of lost the 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 joy of the sport like these guys are clearly doing all this because of an obsession with something other than cycling they are obsessed with winning and they're obsessed with money and so i think there could be an element where they're not looking at this relationship with food as being something that's a personal thing as much as just i got to do this this is just what i have to do you know um it's it's the guy it's like a guy being you know, stuck in the in the rock crevice, and he has to chop off his arm. It's just like it's not even a point of comedy. It's like this is just what I have to do, you know, to to be the best and to win. Just the same the same logic going into why they started dope in the first place. So I, I think it does kind of present this this strange. Is this different than like that college runner or that um, uh, that rower or? A cyclist who's brought up in a good home, has is taken care of, isn't cheating, just wants to compete and be part of a team, but now has been infiltrated with thoughts of body image um, from social media, Instagram, teammates, coaches, just general pressure. Uh, that to me is an eating disorder that's, that looks a lot different than the Tyler Hamilton one. For sure, um, those people are receiving support, but they're 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 also getting hit with the darkness of our world and and getting receiving those twisted thoughts and images. So I, I think it's it's kind of worth like, or at least interesting to to think about. I, I'd be curious almost to talk with Tyler and ask him more more questions just on that topic on on his relationship with food uh, throughout this time. You know, was it much more duty driven? I'm sure that's where it started. Obviously, it's like I got to get my weight down so that my wattages, strength to weight ratio, power to power ratio is up. I'm sure it started that way, but but no doubt it morphed into something too. Where and he says, you know, he's nervous to take any bite of food, and 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 then does that become all all consuming? And how does that affect his workouts? <laughs> how does it affect his relationship with his spouse Haven? You know, uh, and it it certainly did, but but maybe just kind of asking him, like, do you think that's or or describe how that's different than than the eating disorders we we saw in Molly Huddle and Jesse Diggins and these people that we highlighted in our article or or just your typical high school athlete or your fourteen year old girl who's on Instagram too much or, or whatever because uh, I, I do think it's different but and yet the heart of the issue might be the same um, but but as I kind of think about writing that article too and what the Christian response is you know um, I. 
I think I'd almost, I'd have to approach it differently with Tyler. The, the, the foundation, the principles are still the same from a biblical standpoint of, of idolatry not, and, and knowing who your identity truly is or where your identity truly is in Christ. Um, but, you know, in terms of applying it to Tyler's life, if he was a, in 2004 as a cyclist, you'd have so many other issues to, to unpack because again, I think he's he's inflicting this eating disorder literally to survive because he's staked everything on this. And this is why Armstrong too, right? Why admitting these things to Oprah is, took so much time is because there's so much at stake in terms of um, financial security, what's going to happen to your family, all that. It could all unravel at any given moment. And so, which again, I, having that kind of stress involved, you almost got to wonder, like, why would they do it? They must have been trapped in there and just gone, man, and to think I, I originally got into the sport because I like to ride my bike. I mean, just think about how long gone disappeared that is. Most of us do sports because at the, at the root, even if it's because, yeah, I run because I like competition. Yeah. I do this sport because it allows me to set goals. Yeah. Wherever you get your release being with teammates, ultimately, if you do the sport more, you know, to, uh, for a certain amount of time, you're doing it because you do actually like the sport and in cycling, even when you're spending five, six hours a day on your bike, the the pressures surrounding everything else from organizing the logistics of the drugs to uh, worrying about what you're going to eat and and trying to figure everything out like uh, you just would you would think that would just be lost um so that's the point where I'm at in this book is just kind of wondering like man I wonder if he gets on his bike and still goes gosh I can't believe it you know I'm riding and training in Spain and France on these beautiful roads and it's awesome or if he's just so consumed with you know, not, not screwing up, not losing everything. Where's his next contract? How's that all going to work? Uh, it's just weird. So, uh, that's Tyler Hamilton. We took a little more time than I, I thought we would on that, but, um, I don't know. I think it's important. So hopefully you found that interesting. When we come back, let's talk about running. Let's talk about Minnesota state high school league, NCAA cross country, the Gophers, all that good stuff. You're listening to the Cedar Skier podcast on Shovel Lake public radio. Everything you own in the box to the left. In the closet, that's my stuff. Yes, if I bought it, please don't touch and keep talking and that's fine. Hey guys, Ryan Cedarquist here. Look, I'm in the market for a new car. Why? Because I was sold a lemon from a dishonest person. The whole experience has taught me something. Getting a dependable, reliable product from trustworthy people is rare, especially today. But that's why I love the U.S. Ski Pole Company. When it comes to vehicles, you know, I might make some mistakes with the people I trust. But when it comes to skiing and ski poles... Uh, that's not going to work. I use U.S. Ski Pole Company ski poles because they are high quality and because if I have any questions, you know what I can do? I can just call up the owner and founder of the company, the guy making my poles, and talk to him. Andy Liebner has a wealth of knowledge, not only when it comes to making poles, but really everything that has to do with skiing. He's competed at the highest levels, interacted with some of the kings of the industry, both athletes and manufacturers. I trust him to make a great product, and so far, it's proven to be just that for me. You know, I like to brag about how many hours of skiing I get each year, but what often goes unsaid is that 
all of that pounding and double pulling is usually done on U.S. ski pole company gear. The pole tips never run out. There is a seamless change from roller skiing to being on snow because of their easy-to-remove snapping baskets, So, which is great in Leadville because, you know, even in June, I might be on snow, and then the next day, I might, uh, you know, go home to Minnesota, and boom, I just clip off, and I'm ready to roller ski. And, of course, my gloves, they're never chafing because the grips, they're lighter. They're made of foam as opposed to cork. So, uh, and finally, the stiffness and lightness of the 100% carbon fiber shafts, they deliver consistency and performance. Even for kind of a skinny guy like me, I got to be able to put a lot of Newtons into the the ground. Plus, everything is produced here in America, from the grips to the tips. Oh, and I almost forgot. How about the designs? You can customize your own graphics and have them screen printed onto the poles. I have my very own cedar skier design. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go to my blog page. It's posted up on the top. It's our logo. It's complete with my favorite colors, a couple of Bible verses, and pictures of my dog, Ajay. Yeah, that's right. She even made my ski pole design. If you have any interest in getting your hands on these awesome poles, you should reach out to the Cedar Skier on Facebook or our blog. You can just comment or you can text us at 701-388-8290. All right. I'll see you on the snow. The Cedar Skier podcast can be found on Spotify and Anchor. And you can also visit cedarskier.com to listen to this and other episodes. Coming up on our next episode of the Cedar Skier podcast, we talk to... Olympian Ivan Bobikov. That's going to be fun. I can't wait to post that. We actually um, are playing some of our older episodes as well, putting some reruns on Anchor, but the Ivan Bobikov episode is going to be dropping soon, so stay tuned for that. All right, there are some running-related topics that I would like to discuss, and just posted October 5th, that's yesterday, on Let'sRun.com was a guest op-ed by John Simmons, and the title is College Track and Field and Women's Sports is Under Attack at the University of Minnesota. This was written by John Simmons. He's the Big Ten uh, champion in the mile and from 2014. He's a sub-four-minute miler, obviously a member of the Gophers. Highlights some really interesting facts in here and basically makes the argument that if, the, uh, well, f- basically, he lets us all in on the fact that there's going to be 12 members of the Board of Regents getting together on October 12th, no, October 9th, that's this Friday, and he argues they're going to make the most important and consequential decision in our sport. He goes pretty big, hard-hitting, saying, you know, the decision that um, comes from this, if they decide to cut track and cut numbers from the women's team as well, which is what they are planning on doing. Um, This is a team that has fielded as many as 50 athletes on the female side, and they're they're saying they might reduce it to 15 or 18. Uh, If that happens, it is going to, as he says, effectively mark track and field for death. And the reason he says, quote, this decision will set a precedent for track and field on the collegiate level. Losing a Power 5 program empowers athletic directors across the country to follow suit. This, in turn, will affect participation at the high school, recreation, and Olympic levels. If we lose, the sport you know today will be unrecognizable and extinct in a matter of years. If you love track and field, you must stand up right now and fight for the University of Minnesota. Please visit www w.savegophertf.org to get involved. John Simmons, graduating class of 2014, a sub-formative mile and All-American, a Big Ten champion. So, he's spot on. He he cites in this, uh, in this article, it's really well written, he's got uh, great data backing this up, uh, criticizes uh, 
the Minnesota Athletic Department for mishandling money from a budget issue, their excuse of saying that because of COVID and because of the loss of a Big Ten uh, football season is forcing them to make these decisions is is inexcusable, which it is. Um, as far as the as far as the facts are showing us, I mean, maybe if, maybe if <laughs> maybe if Mark Coyle sat down here, he could explain to us the truth here. But um, from someone on the outside, there's a lot of problems. You know, when football was going to be canceled, they were citing Title Nine. You know, actually, he he outlines this right opening up saying citing Title Nine program competitiveness and an alleged seventy five million dollar shortfall due to COVID nineteen. The administration eagerly rushed the proposal to cut uh, men's track and field, men's gymnastics, and men's tennis. And luckily, he brings up the fact that the board of regents decide, hey, we're not going to decide this like tomorrow. We will put this off to the next meeting, October eighth and ninth. So it gives um, these stakeholders four weeks to build their case. There is no appeals process. The decision is final. Um, so the, the the contradictions that that came up right away are the fact that uh, first of all, Title IX is being used as a tool. Because the Gophers are are compliant with Title IX, that's at least some arguments that I've heard. Now, the the proportion, the, obviously, Title IX has three prongs, and um, the proportionality prong they are not in compliance with. Um, they've they they struggle to do that. The current community at the U of M is fifty four percent female and forty six percent male, and the numbers show from twenty twenty. This is according to the article that fifty. 0.2% are female athletes and 49.8% are male athletes. Um, but aside from that, oh, <laughs> then he goes on to say, if if they eliminate these four sports, the ratio will be 58.8% female, 41.2% male, meaning the athletic department would need to drop another 77 women's participants. So to rebalance the scales, you'd see a reduction of 141 women athletes or an opportunity redu- reduction of 29.13% in the last five years. And uh, he brings up the point that this is a very good one. Title IX is meant to increase opportunity, not to diminish it. And obviously what they're doing right there is they're, they're decreasing opportunity not only for men but also for women. And this is the stat that I think needs to be laid out. He says, given that those numbers would indicate 40% of men's opportunities will be in football alone. And he argues, quote, creating an elitist culture of prioritizing profits over student-athlete participation. The reason he's saying that is football is the profit maker. These other sports are not. We know cross-country track and field are not making a profit. They're, they are um, losing money by operating those. However, it's not, not a huge loss. And in fact, I would argue, even if the athletic department is losing money, how much money is the college gaining by having a massive cross-country program? And, and some of the people who are, who are arguing, commenting um, below this article saying things such as, well, the Gophers have had 50 runners, 50 female runners on their team. They, they should be fine going down to 15. They've had way too many. And, and so they're cutting walk-ons. They're cutting athletes that maybe don't really belong in D1. Yeah, well, okay, fine. Fine with that argument athletically. I think it's a poor argument because walk-ons at that school, as recently Gabe Grunwald and um, who was the steeplechaser from 2017 that came from Fargo, North Dakota? Now I can't even think of her name. Uh, uh, Madeline Strandemo. Strandemo. Uh, those are athletes that walked on to the program and did extremely well. 
and made names for themselves for the community of running, which I think is his, you know, a big point here is saying, if you cut the U of M track, you're not only setting a precedent potentially for other big programs to be cut, but you're also just eliminating one of the most influential track programs on the USATF scene altogether. The U of M sends athletes uh, to the pro ranks at a pretty remarkable rate. Ben Blankenship, uh, 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 who is the guy that uh, Blankenship's the same class, uh, Blankenship state champion in the two mile. Now he's, he's made an Olympic team. Oh my gosh. Why can't I think of his name right now? Hassan Mead. That's what it is. Hassan Mead, Hassan Mead, Ben Blankenship, uh, tons of throwers, jumpers, uh, Gabe Grunwald, as I mentioned b- before, and now uh, Madeline Strandemo are two that are, uh, or Madeline Strandemo is one that's, that's out there doing things right now. So yeah, uh, sad. Very sad thing to say, but anyway, I think one thing I'd like to dig into is the claims that, you know, right away, is is the U of M actually in compliance with Titan Line? I think that's the thing that people really need to stick the knife uh, or or put these people to the fire, so to speak. If they're they're claiming that it is a Title IX reason, they need to be able to prove that. And, And most schools where this happens, where men's running teams get cut, uh, they never actually uh, can provide that evidence that uh, Title IX is being breached, except they always just cite the one that most people understand. They, they bring up the proportionality element. Um, but it, it's very sad because when you cut a men's track team, it, it also kills the women's team. And it kills the women's team for a couple of reasons. And the obvious one is that uh, women who are in sports such as track and field and running have grown up with that sport being a team sport. It's a guy, guys and girls are together. That's one team. So it's not seen as being two separate groups. You do everything together, training trips, uh, camps, team camps, meals, workouts, races, bus rides, all that, right. It's all together. Um, and so to get rid of it is to, is to really ruin some of the running experience for those women. But also it's telling recruits that they don't, as a school, care that much about track and field and cross country. Um, and at a minimum, they don't know about it. Because if they knew and cared, they would never split up a team like that and cut it. So recruiting is going to suffer. The women's team will suffer. It will be a slow, miserable death um, for the women's team if that happens. And I guess according to Simmons, he's saying it's going to be a slow, miserable death for track and field all across the board. You cut, if, if, if they can cut track and field at Minnesota, they could cut it anywhere basically is what he's saying. And it gets my point here where we're talking about this argument that, you know, to reduce the female numbers down to 15, maybe that's a good idea. Um, because these other athletes don't belong. The other thing, financially speaking, if you have those athletes, let's say from ranked on the team, right? One through 15, maybe they're scholarship athletes. They're, they're, they're because of talent alone, but, but, but 16 through 50, um, not only are those athletes, many of them good, and they're going to bolster the, but the abilities of those top, that top group and potentially impact that top group. You also have to consider that those other athletes are typically very motivated students, right? Runners are typically, typically have very high GPAs. Academically, they're motivated. They're driven. They have goals. They, they have great skills to have success at the collegiate level academically. And you're going you're gonna to eliminate a huge draw for those students to go to your school. 
And if, and if they're not scholarship athletes, they're, they're, they're paying perhaps tuition, um, or they might have academic scholarships. They probably do, but they're still, they're still providing the school with, um, a significant income from a tuition standpoint. So I don't really get it. Not, you know, to, to have that draw of, yeah, we, we invite, we like having a huge team because it brings in the 12 minute two miler, um, from outstate. And it brings in someone that maybe, maybe academically could have gone to Carlton or St. Ola for Hamlin, but, but wants to be a gopher, you know? And I, I just feel like, why why not sit down with these coaches perhaps and and say look um we love that you have 50 athletes on the team if you can get 100 athletes on your team great here's however what we can provide from a budget standpoint in terms of travel and all those accommodations okay and and if they have to say that you know like and i think this does happen in some places where you have that club team extension but you know as a coach, I would then, I would then argue like I can get 50 or 60 athletes if we can pay for them to run at the GRIAC and run at one other meet or travel to this thing, like, or host this team camp. You know, we can't, we can't siphon off those other athletes completely because otherwise they're not going to feel like they're part of the team. But that's where the compromise needs to happen is you get 15 athletes in the budget to go to nationals, regionals, and conferences. And we're going to, we're going to pay for however big your team is. They all get to run at the GRIAC, which is your home invite. And let's bring them to one other meet and uh, let's, let's have a part-time assistant coach that can uh have them run in some of uh, you know wisconsin invites or these other competitive invites as well and keep that alive that can't cost that much man and then maybe even if, if if it's coming down to it say nope we're not going to if you're if your athletes really want this experience they are going to have to raise that money on their own i, I mean I bet they could do it. And, and so they can't, they can't blame Title IX because they're not out of compliance there. We could look that up, I'm sure. You know, uh, Ralph, get on that. And they can't blame budget because running is so cheap. It doesn't cost anything. And the runners are always willing to raise that money. That's what happened at Bemidji State, too. It's like, oh, it's not Title IX. Well, it's budget. Ultimately, it's budget. Ultimately, it always comes down to money, right? The, the, the loudest talker. And then it's like, well, fine, we'll raise what, what we need whatever will be completely self-supported. So I, I don't know, like, what is it? If it's not budget, if it's not title nine, I I'm so confused as to how decisions like this get made. And there's, there's gotta be tons of dishonesty. It just is weird. Uh, Simmons brings up a couple other numbers that are, are worth mentioning. Um, so current operations, uh, Oh, this is when he kind of rips apart the the financial stuff he says how can a school with a nearly four billion dollar endowment which has been overcharging students for decades be in financial shambles after a half a semester of remote learning and the delay of a football season because football comes back right it's not even canceled now so now the, again these people should be should be uh the, the, they should be pushed into the fire right now and, and forced to answer these questions he goes on quote the current operations cost of cutting these sports is around two million dollars a drop in the bucket for minnesota's athletic department which has increased its overall budget from 60 million to 129 plus million since 2012 not to mention the fact that big 10 football is back which means minnesota will get its 35 million dollars of media revenue possibly more since people will be watching from home additionally the ad the athletic department saves another 25 million dollars without ordinary operating expenses related to spring and fall sports which could extend even further due to COVID 19 historically the athletic department makes an annual profit from zero to five million dollars with a peak outlier of nine million dollars and the final blow here, he says, quote, if the department practiced common sense financial intelligence and created an emergency fund, this would all blow 
over. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, we're, we're with y'all the way, John Simmons. I, I, I feel bad. We're seeing programs cut right and left. It's sad. Um, and goes on. He says, you know, administrators, quote, administrators don't care about non-revenue sports. That's true. Quote, they certainly don't care about diversity and inclusion or women's opportunities. Athletic departments patronize women and use them as a prop to maintain compliance with Title IX. Nothing more. Wow. Yeah. It, again, so true. I, 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 I think women should feel upset about this again because it's – and the women at Bemidji State, when we went through this, by the way, uh, much smaller scale, but our men's team was, was cut the year I was there. And so I kind of witnessed some of this hullabaloo, and they had been through it a couple of years prior and saved the team. And the, the distress on the women – uh, the women's faces and their feet, it was, you know, it was palpable. Like you could see it and feel it. And they were, there was no woman there who was like, yes, this is a win for women's athletics. You know, they saw the kind of the lies they saw through it, the cruelty. And I don't, I don't know, maybe they even saw that they were being used there as a tool to, for the, the administration to kind of make decisions the way they wanted, you know, um, sad, sad, really. The article also brings up kind of a disturbing interaction uh, quote. And this, I think it's a little misleading to use this quote. Let's run featured it. I, I don't agree with this because no, we can't, we don't get any context. We don't have any tone of voice here, but we, we have a commentary that was obtained. He says, uh, between the athletic director and the senior women administrator. And so the senior women administrator says, again, we don't know much context here, but it's on the views of the proposed cut. So this is obviously, it has to be recent. She says, we were trying to get all of our numbers down because we felt like the number of student athletes we had at the department was too large to have an exceptional and meaningful participation opportunity. End quote. And then the AD says, quote, correct me if I'm wrong, but these are walk-on kids. They are walk-ons. The senior women administrator replies, yes. So basically Simmons kind of goes, how can these people, how how dare they say that, you know, walk-ons don't have a meaningful experience and they can tell uh, young women what a meaningful experience is. Uh, I tell that to Gabe Grunewald, right, who became an NCAA runner-up, an alternate for the Olympic team, and eventually a U.S. champion. What about all the Big Tens and all Americans? They don't matter either. And then he says, quote, if the administration believes that, what kind of a meaningful opportunity does a fifth or sixth stringer on the 117-man football roster provide? I love it. I love it. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, this isn't anti-football. Um, football is bringing in a lot of money, especially like in the, in the athletic departments of these big schools. It's it's supporting everything else. So I'm, I'm all for doing what kind of needs to happen there. Uh, but I think these administrators have to remember that at the end of the day, the the collegiate experience is about academics, the arts, and athletics. And that's what you're trying to provide. You aren't trying to run the most successful business. So there's a difference. If you really were just in it for the money in a successful business, you maybe would just have a school offering, offer academics, and offer football you know, and get a ton of money for doing football. And then everyone else can just go to school. But if you want it to be something that provides this next level of athletics for people coming out of high school, then I think you have to, the goal shouldn't be profit margin. It should be, how can we have the most people participating in the most things? Uh, And that just doesn't seem to be the goal. That's the bottom line. It doesn't seem to be the goal, the vision of athletic 
uh, directors. I'm not sure what's getting in the way. You know, is it the temptation? Like, I wonder if they, they're seeing these huge bonuses for if the football team or the basketball team does well, if they make it to the final four, like big contracts and they, they look at it and go, wow, if this happens, then I'm going to benefit substantially financially. I don't know exactly the ins and outs, but I got to imagine there's got to be some corruption happening at an administrative level that fuels some of these decisions. Otherwise they just want, but it is sad when they kind of go, well, this, we want what's best for athletes. And then they don't, they don't, uh, the best thing for student athletes is to be diverse in your college experience to enjoy um, a community which exists in art groups, which exists in athletic groups, other clubs, and to be pushed academically um, and to combine both of those things to prepare you for the rest of your life. So we deprive kids of part of that training for the rest of life when we get rid of a sport that uh, that they're doing or if we get rid of a club that they're in or if we cut a band that they are, are a member of. We, we deprive them of a critical element to their training to become meaningful members of the world. That's my opinion. That's why this is pretty sad, I think. All right. Well, uh, we're going to stay on the topic of Minnesota sports, and this is one um, – deals with the Minnesota State High School League. Now, I've got two separate topics here. So this first one is old, but I didn't address it, and I should have. It's from five months ago. Uh, Minnesota Mile Split says that starting in 2021, uh, Minnesota State High School League will add a third class to XC. And they currently have two, and they will have three. So how it work is the 64 largest schools by enrollment will be in AAA. The next 96 will be in AA. The rest will be in single A. And it says, however, the number of individual state qualifiers will go from eight to six. Okay. So I am anti this. Um, I get it. Um, some people say uh, this is, this is a, um, a let's run poster says, here's some possible reasons. No idea if they're right. Just guessing. One, most other states have four to six classes. Some other Minnesota sports have more than two classes. And then he also says, and what about 6AA, section 6AA? So let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, most other states have four to six classes. One, that's dumb. They shouldn't. The only state that should is California. Um, and, and California, actually, what they almost should do, well... I don't, I, okay, I don't live in California, so I, so I don't really know. But if you had to, like, say, let's make this two-class system universal, then probably what you'd have to do is, like, split California in half and have two um, kind of state, like a Northern California state champ and a Southern California state champ. I, I actually don't know how they do it currently in Cali. Uh, I have to talk to talk to Coach D or something about that. Um, he ran there. But California California's different. It's a different beast. But every, everyone else really should just stick with two classes. Uh, and the reason is consistency, make it an honor to just get to state and leave it at that. Have a big, big class, small class. Okay. You know, um, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of, of outliers in that system where either, you know, if they're like in North Dakota, there used to be, um, so many really small schools and not that many big schools. So, so at state, it'd be hard to, to say what's big and small. Cause maybe there's like a city like Fargo with a hundred thousand people. And then there's three or four other cities with 50,000 people. And then there, there's no one in that middle ground of 20, 30, 10,000. It kind of drops all the way down to like a hundred or 200, um, just little farm communities. So 
I would say North Dakota would be one where you could argue, hmm, maybe that wouldn't work. And, and in fact, in, in North Dakota, you almost you almost could say maybe they just have to would have had to have gone to one uh, back then. Now, now North Dakota is bigger now, so I think two class probably works perfectly for them. They have a lot more bigger cities, and they could work that out. Uh, but but really, it's like, man, I, I I just disagree with with that entirely. But we, we've just shifted way more towards getting to state isn't as big of a deal. But uh, and then of course, winning state does isn't as big of a deal either. When there are three classes, the actual competition is much more equitable that way. Um, so you get more participants. It's, it's more equitable comp- competition. So if that's what you're for, um, and I guess by equitable, equitable, you know, you're competing against people who are like you and, and all that. But I, I just, I just think like part of the drama and the prestige and the, the, uh, what's the word? I mean, what makes it truly special at a state is the fact that there's everyone's chasing that one item and the chances of you getting it aren't that high. Like to stand on top of the podium is truly remarkable. And, um, and you might be from Bagley and you might be running against someone from Minneapolis South and, or Edina, and they have had an advantage or they're the biggest school, but like, that's what it's all about. That's why I'm here, you know, and you have your conference meet to be alongside the members who are a little, you know, have that, that more, this is a championship atmosphere, but everyone kind of gets a taste. That's what conferences is for. Sections is a little more high stakes. It's different. It's cutthroat. And then you got state. I I just think why, why not keep it like that? We don't have to make every single event the same, you know? So I think, I think that's dumb. I think they, they should, if anything, they maybe should work towards having universal conference meets, you know, have a conference. Every school needs to be in a conference meet, elevate the, the, the conference meet to meaning something. Okay. Maybe you even do away with a section meet. You have your conference meet be the, the championship that, that is worth points. It's sort of like they do in D1 collegiate. They don't, they don't necessarily have a, uh, at the qualifier race doesn't necessarily determine who's going to nationals. It's just worth more points in the overall system. And then at the end of the year there, they actually are like, so every race matters basically. I mean, that, that would actually be a much better system to implement in terms of making it to state is, is have sort of an RPI type thing where every race counts, every result counts and it, and it, and, um, you don't get to just sandbag until the section meet and then make it to state, you know, and, um, and then you could have conference really mean something. And yet at conference, will it mean something? Every single person on the team can run in it. You know, everyone gets that taste of a championship atmosphere. Uh, my act, you know, my division three experiences, it really, I, looking back, it, it fit it perfectly that way because, you know, the Mayak meet was, had a, a ton of prestige. Every single athlete at every single school was in that race though. So they all got to taste and feel what it was like to be in a high stakes championship race. Everyone should feel that. That's cool. We shouldn't, we shouldn't like deprive athletes of that. That can be their, that, that is their end season goal perhaps. Um, and then the next week you go off to regions and, and you find out if you have what it takes and, and most people are going to cross the line and it's going to be their last race, you know, but this, but a few get to go on and that's what makes it cool and makes it special. So don't dumb it down. I just, I dislike it. However, reading through this, um, <laughs> I guess I should have done some dig, uh, dig, dig, uh, deep diving here because section six AA does really present something that's remarkable. And I didn't know about this story from 2017. You guys know who Patrick Roos is. He ran for Adina. He was the state champion. Looks like in 2016, I want to say, 
Um, he was a state cross country champ. He was the third place finisher in the 3,200 meters the previous year at state. And he's running for the U of M on scholarship, but at the section meet, so keep in mind this a couple years ago at the section meet and track, he took third place and missed the qualifying standard by 0.3 seconds. So the auto qualifier, the auto qualifier for the two mile apparently is 913.38. That is, <laughs> oh, we just had the, the special with Glenn Ellingson, right? He ran 916 and won the state meet and set the school record. Uh, 913.38 is the auto qualifying time. And Roos ran 913.69, got third. So didn't make the top two to auto qualify <laughs> for state track. And he was 0.3 out and there was actually a petition and it did not pass. So the, the surprising thing is the guy ran 9.13 and the section is so loaded that he didn't make it to state. The not surprising thing is the petition to the Minnesota State High School League did not pass. So very sad, and, and maybe that would be your argument for making another class. I would just say maybe they need to restructure that stupid section. It's been you know, since 2002 they've been you – know, I've heard stories about coming out of Section 6AA about – how loaded it is and how unfair it is. And, and it is kind of true. That section meet is like, you could just take the results from the section meet. And, and a lot of times they would, they would, they would compete well at, you know, Nike cross regionals. And I just have uh, so many other running topics I wanted to get to today. And I just don't know if I'm going to really have time for it. Um, and we definitely not going to get to ski stuff. I guess I might have to save that for another show. Uh, the, the, the revealing of that calendar, we got to try and keep these, Keep this at least kind of close to within an hour or so. Um, the other Minnesota State High School League news is kind of fresh off the press. This is the revelation that um, Minnesota State High School League has just released their plans for winter sports in a fall postseason. Bottom line, there will be no state tournament for fall sports. That includes cross country. Um, very sad. Uh, just devastating. I, I, oh, I, I think it's... Kind of outrageous. If you're if you're running races already, everyone's all masked up. You know, everyone's abiding by the rules, putting each other at risk. How can you run regular season meets in a, a section meet or a region meet and and then feel like the state meet would be unsafe to do? I, it's mind bogglingly inconsistent, and I just I don't think there's really much else to say about that. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's very strange. Um, so we we turn to our, our ultimate source of authority and information back to the let's run message boards to find out just some other things that other states some other things that were happening and so is what what happened is uh the the founder robert or uh, weldon johnson post he says hey what's going on in your state are you holding cross-country meets do you have a state meet what's going on um what states aren't holding the one cali's not holding a state meet Connecticut, the canceled high school football. We'll kind of run through some of these. Pennsylvania hosting meets and invites. Uh, coaches need to wear masks. Kids are wearing masks at warm-up in groups before the race starts. That's uh, just crazy, but not during the race because you're only at risk in the warm-up. Um, Oklahoma is hosting meets. Like there isn't a pandemic. Yeah, Oklahoma. <laughs> Classic. I think some meets have limited spectators. I believe there's an expectation to wear a mask if you're not racing. Other than that business, as usual, you can just picture it, Oklahoma. Michigan's pretty uptight, right? Meets are limited, 12 schoolers or less. Um, many big invites canceled. Um, 
I thought recently though that was from a week ago. I thought I thought they had to run in masks. That's what they were trying to do in Michigan. Oh, well, I think actually fresh off the press is that is what the governor said is everyone masked up at all times, including in a race. And then the attorney general said we're not going to enforce that. That's not constitutional. So uh, it was you had a lot of things going on there. Massachusetts. Oh, here we go out east. Divided the states into geographical pods, and you can only compete against each team in your pod. No going against other teams. So they have dual meets, every team in the pod, and a possible league meet. I love pods. I remember when I found out in middle school that I was in a pod. It just made me so excited. Masks at all times except when actually running. Can only take 20 kids to away meets. So as many as you want if you have a home meet. Hmm. Hmm. North Carolina, what's happening there? They have meets. Bigger ones have wave starts. Masks worn until warm-up. Texas. Meets are limited to eight teams. Per race, varsity and JV are separated by at least an hour, so the format goes somewhat like this. 7.30, varsity girls run. 8 a.m., varsity boys run. Immediately after the race, the teams must depart the race site. Great. That way, just go support your, go support your team. Right, go cheer for your... No, no. You got to leave. Get out of here. 9 a.m., JV. 9.30, JV boys, right? Immediately after the race, teams depart the site. They've been authorized to allow 10 athletes per team, but normal scoring is always... Sounds depressing. It is depressing. Have you been to a cross-country meet lately? I went to one, and it was... It was. It was just... It was... It was weird. It was depressing. That's why That's why I started the whole cross-country collections thing. I was like, we got to get some excitement back here, you know? Um, New York. Oh, gosh. New York. No state. No sectionals. No invites. Very low-key. So One-third of the leagues aren't even doing cross-country. Hmm... And then someone replied, I'm in New York State. We are doing sectionals, which is a state qualifier, but without getting to go to states, obviously. Hmm. Okay. We are to wear masks until 30 seconds before the gun. Coaches wear masks at all times. That person did not say where they are. Florida, most big meets running as normal. Thousand runners plus specters. Everyone's supposed to wear a mask except when running, warming up, blah, blah, blah. Some counties won't allow schools to compete outside of a county, but most get around it by competing in club division. Meet directors have added this race because so many schools in this situation. Interesting. Interesting. So they can't travel. They go a club team, and then the race directors are like, good, we want you in here. Tennessee, full steam ahead. Okay. Hmm. As for states, expected to go on as normal. Wisconsin, raced four times this year. Had to wear masks to the line and carry them during the race. Oh, my gosh. I can't even... When I'm, like, running with my dog... I ran with Ajay the other day, and I have to have her in a leash for the for, until I get into the middle of nowhere. I'm already in the middle of nowhere, but I have to get more into the middle of nowhere. Uh, and, and I just, like... I dropped, my, I dropped the leash, and... Um, Chucked it in the woods. I couldn't carry it for you know the forty five minutes in between the leash portions of the run. It was just not gonna not gonna work. Not gonna work. Wow, carry that mask. What a what an awful distraction. <laughs> I just can't even imagine. I mean, I, I get it. It's light. Like, is it really affecting you? No, but but every time like when you're in a race and you're feeling the pain and you're, you're trying to like find that place, find that rhythm, find that find that flow state, like. The thing I'd want to have carrying around would be a mask, right, to, to remind me to enter into the flow state, feel good about myself, and um, move on, you know, and be tough, I think. And then, of course, Minnesota comes in, regular season, maximum of three teams per race. Section meets, the meets that are used to determine qualifier for state. Um, what do we got here? Section tournament information. It's going to happen week of October 12th. 
teams consist of six runners with the top five scoring. This allows for not more than 24 runners on the start line at any time. Oh, wow. Four teams on the course at one time. So they have to be held over two days if necessary. Four, wow. Interesting. How do they even determine? And well, it says, you know, information on advancement is, to, is TBD. Of course, now it doesn't, there is no advancement. So even awards, yeah, how are they going to do that? If you, if you run two different days, what, what, if, what if you're running this, you know, <laughs> you're running this at the Holly, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're the Bagley, Dilworth, Glendenfeld, Nada, Lake Park region running it at uh, Twin Pines up in Bagley, right, for your section meet, like you always do. Coach Hogan's up there trying to recruit for Bemidji State. And day one, we got 60 degrees, perfect fall weather. It's color. It's Minnesota. Here we go. And then the next day, it's 10 degrees and the snow is falling. That's fair, right? It sounds like trophies first and second place teams, medals first and second place teams, um, individual medals one through eight. They might have streaming. Uh, tickets, limiting spectators to a total of 250 individuals. Huh. Okay. So this is Minnesota practice required. Runners must maintain six feet of distancing. Wait, is that in the race? Like, it's like, it's like triathlon rules. You know, you can't draft. You need to, you need to pass. You need to pass strong. You need to get six feet apart. Hmm. Uh, not recommended while running. They're not recommended. So what was Michigan? Right, they're going against the science there. Competition. Um, okay, so in competition, all participants must wear masks if they cannot socially distance at six feet from others unless participating in the meet. Okay, okay. So, sorry, you can, you can, you can actually do all that stuff. Interesting. No post-race handshakes. Or fist bumps and no award ceremonies. Just imagine if you had a miracle race and you won the section meet this year. You know, I mean, maybe you only did it against four other, 24 other athletes. So that would dull it considerably. But man, I just, oh, so sad. Hmm. Okay. I think here in Colorado, we've got everything going. So I, I don't think there's, um, why the state meet's still happening. Um, We've got regions this week, I believe. Yeah, this week, region meets for Colorado. So next week will be state. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, and uh, But, yeah, very sad for Minnesota to make that decision, I think, to not have state. Obviously, inconsistent. And um, you know what bothers me more than anything is inconsistency, especially when it comes to logic and rationality. And, and on that note, I think we will end this edition of the Cedar Scare podcast and point you forward to um, some upcoming shows. We'll probably get something on Anchor for Skiologians, where we really like to dive deep into consistent rational thinking. And of course, if you have comments or questions, you should absolutely, absolutely leave them uh, below. We can, we will bring them up. We'll answer questions. If you've, if you've gotten this far on the show, you've got a question or a topic or something you want to bring up for uh, an upcoming show, do that. Uh, we didn't get to our ski stuff, so we'll have to save that for next time. A couple of days here, we'll 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 get another Cedar Skier podcast going. We have some really exciting things coming up here. We're doing a sit down chat. Um, well, we have we have the Yvonne Bobcat show that we're we're still we're going to edit and we're going to get that out. So that should get you excited. We've got another Olympian on the docket to talk about the state of cross country skiing. We still have our our Eric Hansen show 
state of running. So we're going to get to that here post London Marathon. So that should be interesting. I'm sure he will love to comment on the Sarah Hall performances. Uh, if you didn't know that, Sarah Hall got second place at the London Marathon, which is insane. Out sprinted the the uh, marathon world champion from last year, uh, a Kenyan that I cannot cannot remember her name, but phenomenal race there. So, lots of exciting things happening. Check out our website. Check out our blog. You can follow us. You can download our things on Anchor, and you can even donate to this podcast, which is insanely scary that you could support us financially. But don't don't dismay. Your finances will probably be spent on kickwacks. Um, we'll make, we'll make sure if you donate to let you know where your money ends up going in the name of the Cedar skier.com podcast, Cedar skier podcast factory team. All right. That's enough for today. We'll see you next time. <laughs>